0: Welcome to The Human Perspective, a podcast with the internationally recognized, badass disability rights activist, Judy Human. This episode, Judy interviews Dior Vargas. Dior is a queer, Latina, feminist, mental health activist. She is a leader in intersectional mental health activism with an emphasis on queer communities and communities of color. Please be advised that this episode does discuss mental health and specifically mentions suicidal ideation, suicide attempt, and psychiatric hospitalization. Another content warning for our Ask Judy segment, there is discussion of abortion as well as sexual assault. The Human Perspective is produced by me, Kylie Miller, and Judy Human. So let's roll up, lay down, dance around, whatever makes you feel best,
1: and let's meet this episode's guest. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Human Perspective. Today, our guest is Dior Vargas, and I think you're going to find her compelling, very interesting, and you're definitely going to learn and she's got a lot of areas of expertise. And one of the things that I thought was of interest to me is a couple of weeks ago, I got an honorary doctorate at Smith College and at NYU. And lo and behold, I found out that Dior, you also had gone to Smith and to NYU and Pace. So welcome, Dior. It's so nice to have you with us. Could you tell us a little bit more about who you are? Sure.
2: So uh, I'm Dior. I'm a mental health activist and I grew up in New York City. My family uh, is Ecuadorian and Puerto Rican, and I'm very close to my immediate family, which includes my mom, my stepdad, my older sister, and my maternal grandparents. So I identify as a feminist. There are complications within feminism, but I definitely look at feminism through an intersectional lens. And so I'm not exactly sure how else to describe myself, but for some reason, people think that I'm an artist, a creative, and I'm trying to, to find that within myself uh, because that's just not something that I see. But uh, I think that'll be an interesting journey for me to take. So why do some
1: people see you in that way?
2: I'm not sure. I think maybe because of the photo project, maybe other reasons, but I'm not entirely sure. So we'll see. Uh, what I find out in that discovery I used to do uh, theater of the oppressed back in the day uh, and did other things in theater so maybe that's also where it comes from
1: (laughs) how old were you when you first started experiencing symptoms of mental illness and how long did it take before you got a diagnosis which was helpful to you and to others
2: So I was about six years old, and that's when my father left home. My parents got separated. And so from the age of six, I started feeling very depressed. And uh, this goes beyond your question, but from the age of eight to 18, I was dealing with uh, trigger warning, suicidal ideation. And from the ages of 11 to 18, I very frequently uh, attempted to end my life. And uh, to be specific, I have PTSD, dysthymia, and traits of borderline personality disorder. I didn't get my first diagnosis of depression uh, until I was in high school.
1: How was it playing out for you and your family when you were six and eight and when you went to high school?
2: Right. There was a lot of turmoil in my house, uh, a lot of domestic violence and living paycheck to paycheck. And so we were struggling. And for me, I just felt like I couldn't share what I was going through. And so I felt that what my mother and my family was going to was much more important and I didn't want to be burdensome. So that's how things went. How old are you now? So I'm turning 35 next weekend.
1: Ah, great.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so 34 for a couple of days more.
1: And the reason I'm asking the question is, even today, discussions around mental health issues for adults or children, I think are not happening as they should. So at that point in your life, given everything else that was going on, did your mother have any knowledge or experience or your grandparents on uh, mental health issues?
2: So in terms of my mom, she definitely uh, experienced depression as a young girl. And I think she's still experiencing mental health issues. So I think personally, she had some of that experience, but I don't think she truly realized what I was going through back then. She did notice that I was isolating myself and getting irritable. And maybe she just chalked it up to growing up. And then in terms of my maternal grandparents. There were some uh, stirrings uh, where people did experience mental health issues, but it wasn't something that was addressed or prioritized.
1: And mental health services like today are still not available as they need to be. Mm -hmm. So you were going to school and none of your teachers noticed anything going on until you were like a teenager.
2: Not at all. I, until college, I was a straight A student, always got first honors, was part of National Honor Society. And so I, I don't like the term high functioning, but I would say that that's what I displayed. And I think that's what made them not even think that I was going through mental health issues.
1: You're smart. And I think frequently, you know, for girls in particular, um, also with learning disabilities, people don't look to girls and teenagers, the same way they do to boys and boy teenagers. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very understandable. You are achieving more than many others. And so if people only associate mental health issues with someone who is not functioning and showing their best, I'm sure that's another part of it. Would you agree to that? Absolutely.
2: Yeah. I think that there are a lot of uh, misperceptions when it comes to mental health and the idea that if you have a mental health condition, you are going to act a certain way or even look a certain way because people think that there is a look or a specific one to mental health conditions. So
1: I definitely agree. So when did you start thinking about yourself as someone who was having mental health issues?
2: When I was in high school, I think that was when I started realizing that I was experiencing mental health symptoms. And that's when I tried to learn as much as I could because not knowing what was going on with me, being very confused, I, like the student I was, I was focused on doing whatever research I could so that I could figure out how to deal with it or if there was something that I could do to alleviate the symptoms. So it was then when I started really focusing and admitting to the fact that the way I was feeling and the way I was living wasn't uh, sustainable, but also just, I don't want to say not normal, but I shouldn't be dealing with mental health symptoms in that way. So that's when I really started to focus on it.
1: So when would you say you started doing advocacy work for yourself and for others?
2: So when I think about advocacy, oftentimes I'll think about self-advocacy, like you mentioned. And so I think that when I started doing that research in high school and started trying to see a therapist, that's when I really started to focus on how I could help myself and defend myself in in whatever situation I was in. And that was around the age of 18.
1: And so when did uh, you experience what some might call a crisis?
2: Yes, I'll speak to one major crisis because that's the thing that really prompted me or was the catalyst for me to start focusing on my mental health and eventually identifying as a mental health activist. But when I was 18, it was my first summer after my first year at Smith and I returned home and I was just going through a lot. And I felt that there was nothing for me in my life and that it was just too troublesome. I was going through too many struggles. And like I had before, I decided to end my life. And that's when I was hospitalized and then placed in a psychiatric ward. So prior to then, I didn't think that those attempts were were going to have any real consequences until that time. So that's what really got me into focusing on my mental health.
1: So when you were at Smith, were any people aware of the fact that you were having some problems?
2: Definitely not my teachers or administration. I wasn't very close or had developed any sort of relationships with my professors. So the only person that really knew was uh, my sister, but also one of the students at Smith. But it's not something that I particularly wanted to share.
1: At that point, uh, were there services available on campus for students who might want to speak to a counselor?
2: So I didn't know about those services until after that summer, after my first year, but they do have a counseling center that you can go to. So I started using those services, but I I wish I had known about it before because I could have taken more preventative measures.
1: Yeah, I think this is an issue in many places where there are things available, but Like in your case, as a freshman, um, there's so much going on that there's no way that you can know everything that's happening. Mm -hmm. And I think you see that a lot with like disabled students offices or disability services offices where they may even have good services. But if you don't yet identify as having a disability, whatever it may be, you don't necessarily think about going there. So I think since you were in school um, and when I was in school, I think things are improving on more college campuses. Would you agree with that?
2: Yes, I think that it has improved. I think that students know more about what's available to them and they're not as afraid to disclose that information. And I think that they feel probably more positive about it. So I think it definitely has improved, but that doesn't mean that every student knows about the resources that are available to them.
1: Or that they feel comfortable in using them, even if they know they're there. So tell us a little bit more about how are you advocating with others regarding mental health issues? How are you helping people become more educated, both people who themselves have mental health disabilities and others in the community?
2: So for the past couple of years, I've been working with colleges and universities, sometimes the employees, but mainly the college students. And I've also been working with employees at various companies talking about mental health and wellness. And so that's what I've been doing uh, the past couple of years, uh, in addition to my photo project, which I thought was a really great way to start the conversation. And so with these various talks, uh, they are panels, keynotes, workshops. And basically I use my personal story to inform the work. I think it's an opportunity for people to feel vulnerable and open about their mental health issues. And so I give them the opportunity to really think about it. I give them ways for them to self-advocate, specifically when it comes to their job, if it's with a company. And then when it comes to students, That's where I make sure that they know about the resources available, specifically when it comes to the Office of Disability.
1: When you're doing your trainings or your discussions with people, do you uh, talk at all about 504, ADA, other relevant protections that people may have available to them?
2: Absolutely. When I was in college, I didn't know about those resources and I probably would have been a much better student. So when I do go to colleges and universities, I do make it a point to acknowledge mental health resources in general, but mainly the protections that they receive from the Americans with Disabilities Act. And so I can definitely speak to that from personal experience. When I got my second master's, I had already been doing advocacy for a while. And so through that, I got the education. That I needed so that I could go to the Office of Disability and access support and receive accommodations, like getting extra time on exams, being able to take my exam in another room away from my classmates. So, those are just some examples of the accommodations I received. And I was a much better student for my second master's. And so, I don't want any other student to struggle when there are resources available to them because. That's even more of a shame when there are things that can help. And so I definitely make it a point to share. And often a lot of students, that will be news to them. So it makes it really worthwhile that I know they will be proactive and find ways to advocate for themselves and get the accommodations they need.
1: I think this is a very important discussion, in part because frequently high school students with invisible disabilities, but not exclusively, don't want to be identified as having a disability. Did you have a 504 plan when you were in high school?
2: Not at all. I had no knowledge of any of that. And since I had a certain understanding of disability, it's not something that I claimed
1: Yeah, I think, you know, one issue for kids who are in high school is understanding that if you have a disability and you're getting accommodations, that it's important to let the university know so that there can be... Uh, no break potentially between high school and college. And clearly, as you're describing it for yourself, you didn't learn about this till you were on your way to your second master's. I have friends who with ADHD didn't get identified till she was in her master's program and exactly like you was talking about what a difference it made to be able to get accommodations. So do you talk specifically also with people to find out whether they're reluctant to uh, discuss their disabilities and how do you encourage them to do that?
2: Sometimes when I do my workshops, I try to do some sort of poll just to get a better idea of where people are when it comes to mental health. And sometimes it's overly negative, sometimes it's positive, which is a nice surprise. And so I think that gets them to start thinking about what they've experienced. But I definitely give them different ideas, tips and tricks on how they can better advocate for themselves. And uh, I think that that's a great opportunity for them because sometimes we don't have the time to just sit down and think about our mental health or to focus on that. So I am really proud to be able to give that opportunity to whoever I do work with.
1: Now, like many of us, you're a complex being and uh, you have multiple identities, both as a Latina and queer person. And how have those particular aspects of who you are influenced your work?
2: Right. I definitely use my personal experience, um, my lived experience for my work. I think it's a way for me to connect with others and it takes time to trust someone. But I think that that really opens the floor for people to be open
1: about that. I think what's important is that you're able, because you tell your story, you know, you're quite personal and revealing and you share who you are. Does your ability to be able to be reasonably transparent help other people also be willing to discuss things that they otherwise may not have done in the past?
2: I think so. I think that when they hear about the struggles that I've overcome, and it gives them a representation that maybe they're less likely to have seen when it comes to mental health, I think that that gives them the opportunity to see something that they can connect with. When I did my keynote for Disability Rights Iowa, there was this uh, young girl who came to me in tears telling me that when I was talking, she felt as if she was talking. And I also overheard that after my talk, she started sharing that she wants to be a lawyer. And now that she's heard about how I've been able to accomplish a lot of things with my mental health condition, she feels that she can apply for law school. And so that's so meaningful for me. And it definitely validates the work that I do.
1: And I think it really underscores uh, one of your strengths, which is being able to be honest and forthright. And, you know, my presumption is that you do this because you want other people to be able to move forward in life where their disability is one which they can identify and know about resources and things that they can do. Are there any particular resources that you direct people to
2: So it also depends on the audience. If I'm doing something, for example, for Latinx Heritage Month, I'll encourage them to access Latinx therapy or therapy for Latinx. They provide directories for Latinx mental health professionals. And so I think that that's really a great resource because often it can be very hard to find someone that you can relate to or even find someone who takes your insurance if you do have insurance. And so I think that makes it a lot easier. And then when it comes to just communities of color, in general. There's a national network of queer and trans uh, mental professionals of color. They're college students. I'll refer them to the Steve Fund. So it depends on the audience, but it's definitely whatever might be helpful to them. So in general, it could be Crisis Text Line or the National Suicide Prevention Hotline, things like that.
1: Thank you. Now let's move a little bit forward. Uh, You launched a project called the People of Color and Mental Illness Photo Project in 2014. So why did you do that?
2: So when I decided that I wanted to become a mental health activist, I, again, uh, it feels like a broken record, but I wanted to do research, I wanted to educate myself on the topic as best as I could. So I started volunteering with mental health organizations and learning about the topics that were being discussed. And so through my research, going through Google and entering terms like mental illness or depression or anxiety, you usually see the images pop up at the top of the page. And so I saw some images that were very interesting to me. And so that's when I went fully into the images section and saw that a lot of them looked extremely negative. They were in black and white. People looked noticeably, they just looked like they were suffering to no end. And while that can be valid for a lot of people, that's definitely not something that at least I can speak to uh, experience on a daily basis or all the time. And what I, what else I saw was I saw a lot of white people in that representation, specifically white women. And so it brought me back to when I was younger and how the representations that I saw or the lack of when it came to mental health, really impacted me and contributed besides other things to my feeling like I couldn't be open about it and that it was something that only I was experiencing. So I didn't want anyone else to experience that and also noticing my family didn't talk about mental health. So I thought if I focused on communities of color, that that would be a great way to start that conversation. And usually there isn't a focus on communities of color, specifically back then. So I thought it would be a really good way for people to see people who looked like them and be able to connect and feel like they weren't the only ones going through this.
1: How is the project going?
2: It's good. Uh, My online version is ongoing. There's no deadline to when you uh, experience mental health symptoms or get diagnosed. And I definitely didn't require people to get diagnosed because often we don't know about resources or we don't see a mental health professional. So often we don't get that diagnosis. Uh, and then when it comes to the book, uh, yeah, it's it's doing well. I uh, have two versions, uh, but the last one that I published was one that was in both English and Spanish. So I wanted to also create another way to make it more accessible to people.
1: So is it still called People of Color and Mental Illness Photo Project? So the online version is, but I decided to be a little more
2: creative with the book. And so the name of the book is The Color of My Mind, Mental Health Narratives from People
1: of Color. Beautiful. How do people get the book? So uh,
2: it's on Amazon. It's on barnesandnoble.com. And then there's this website. I think it might be bookshop.com, but it's basically where you can decide to buy it from independent booksellers. So that's something that I wanted to make that available to them in case they didn't want to buy from Amazon or Barnes and Noble.
1: And we'll put that information in so people don't have to write it down right now. You'll get it later. What are some of the responses you're getting from people? a lot
2: of positive responses. A lot of people have shared that this is something that they needed to see, that they use to start talking about their own mental health struggles. Also a way for them to start the conversation with family, friends, and loved ones. And A lot of times people felt that they were the only one, so they're very appreciative of the project and the conversations that were starting as a result. So besides that, also just getting feedback after any of the talks that I do, that's also really rewarding. I did admittedly get some negative responses when I started because a lot of people thought that I was excluding non-people of color. And really it was just a way for me to highlight and uplift these stories that are usually not told. So there is always gonna be a group of people who don't particularly like what you do, but I stayed focused on that mission. And I think that that's been really helpful.
1: I mean, I think the point that you're raising is when you don't see yourself, that's a problem. And so you as a researcher, where many people aren't, were clearly seeing that you weren't being reflected in what was happening. So I think it's really important that you've been able to broaden people's understanding and horizons um, so that they understand that mental health disabilities are something that occur in all communities and there are different issues and problems that people need to face that may be more prevalent in communities that are less served and uh, may not have health insurance, et cetera. So I appreciate what you're doing. What are some of the messages you want people to know about mental health?
2: So while it can be hard to deal with mental health conditions, it's not something that will ruin your life. Your life is not over If you start feeling mental health symptoms, or if you do get that diagnosis, that it's something that a lot of people experience, that you're not alone and that it is a community issue. So just not to think so negatively uh, about mental health struggles and knowing that there are people that are there for you, that love you, that want to support you. I I think often we can feel so alone. So if we can really look to those who can support us, I think that that can be very helpful and you can accomplish. Accomplish so much with a mental illness or a mental health condition. So it's, it's not the end of your life or the end of the world. You definitely will be able to cope.
1: Who are some of the people in your life that have been important to you around your mental health disability and understanding and supporting you?
2: Yes. My grandmother, my maternal grandmother, I remember one point she was telling me that it was okay to cry. My general upbringing was that crying was a sign of weakness, that you need to toughen up. And so for her to have told me that it's okay to cry, I felt like I had that permission to express my emotions, which is not something that my family in particular did. Men were the ones that were able to express anger, but women weren't. So I think my grandmother was definitely a support to me uh, as well as my, my grandfather, my maternal grandfather, and also my sister. She's been by my side. She's my best friend. So she's
1: always been a constant support to me. So it's great that you've had this really important family support network. I'm sure, you know, as a teenager, you know, many teenagers have difficulty relating to their family because that's part of right growing up and maturing. So additional issues that go on when people are younger. How do you think we can improve the inclusion of mental health in the disability community and vice versa?
0: I think it would
2: be great for the mental health advocacy community and the disability community to connect with one another more often. I think it would be great to have some sort of conference or just ways for them to have those conversations to find common things that they can relate to or that they have between one another. And for people to just get a better uh, education that their mental health condition is something that is considered a disability. And I think the disability has taken on that word and really made it a source of pride. And so I think that that's something that can really contribute to the mental health community because they will feel like they're part of a community that is working to get better access to support. And I think that that's really uplifting and encouraging and gives you that agency to get that support for yourself. So I would love for uh, these two communities to really connect with one another and eventually just become one. I mean, you can definitely have your offshoots and focus on a specific issue, but it's definitely important to see the commonalities.
1: Yeah, I I very much agree with you. And I think one of the common threads across all the different disability communities is people being able to tell their stories and to be proud of who they are, which you emulate so well. And I think that's what we see in many communities, the ability to really come forth and not feel ashamed about who we are and to also be able to own disability as a part of the communities that we're part of. So what advice do you have for aspiring mental health advocates?
2: So definitely learn as much as you can work with different mental health organizations. Uh, It's important to, to network and have those connections. And then also try to learn as much as you can in terms of what the discussions are when it comes to that. For me, I didn't see a lot of conversation if at all about communities of color and mental health and how there's a lot more nuances to that. And so I think if you look and see what's being discussed and what's not being discussed, I think that's where you can find a way to focus on a specific aspect of it. So definitely see what's lacking and how you can contribute to that. And mental health advocacy can be difficult, specifically if you are using your personal experience that can get triggering at times. It's important to really think about why you wanna be a mental health activist because when there are times that you worry you're not helping anyone, I think when you return back to your
1: why, that's something
2: that can help you continue
1: fighting And moving forward. You know, one thing that I find uh, unique about you is you love research. And I think it's a critical component in disability in any area that research can be so very important in really helping to more clearly identify both what the problems are and then to be able to look at solutions that are working, not working, that we need to continue to work more on. So how would you like to see research, education, and resource advancement? If you could control the world in this, what would it look like for you?
2: I mean, there's the medical community that has their ideas, but I think it would be great to really look into the DSM and see the ableism in it to really investigate and really go through what that looks like and how that impacts certain communities. I would love to see more mental health professionals of color, more of a push towards mental health professionals to get more of an education related to cultural competency or cultural compassion. And just for there to be more spaces where mental health is discussed and no longer brings any shame or stigma to it.
1: What role do you think the media has to play in presenting the issue of people with mental health disabilities in a way which is informative and inclusive?
2: It is such a crucial aspect of the way people think about disabilities Whatever you see in the media, I think, is really reflective of society as well. And so, if you can have more positive representations, show the complexity of people's experiences, and that if you live with uh, bipolar disorder, that the symptoms or your uh, experiences are definitely not going to look the same as someone else's. And so, showing the diversity within living with a mental health condition is extremely important. And showing that people are moving forward, that with their mental illnesses, it does give them the strength to move forward and live a better life. So I think that it's so important for the media to show more positive representations, because I think that leads to more discussions and more of an openness to talk about mental health.
1: COVID clearly has had a very big impact on children and adults. And I'm wondering, are you noticing anything in the area of COVID and its impact on people's mental health? Are people reaching out to you more, what are some of your thoughts?
2: I definitely have received a lot more requests for speaking engagements since COVID started because I think that we had no choice but to realize how important mental health is. And a lot of people's mental health because of COVID have been deteriorating and more people are experiencing mental health symptoms. So it definitely has impacted communities. And it's unfortunate that COVID had to prompt these discussions, but I think making the best of it and finding ways to help other people through this process, because we're all going through it, I think is something that I definitely want to continue doing.
1: Are you doing any work in the area of peer support?
2: Back in the day, I did. I feel like in some way, my work is... uh <laughs> sort of peer support, sure. but I, I think I would like to think about other ways that I can support people with mental health conditions. So that might be something that I return to.
1: Yeah, and I think also getting other people who've been experiencing mental health issues right now who have been able to um, kind of help put their life in balance and maybe also can be working with other people. Uh, When I worked at the Center for Independent Living in Berkeley, we started a peer support program. And so it was made up of other disabled individuals. Uh, Most of them were not therapists, but they were people who were able to articulate their story and also to listen well and help people move forward or get services. So I think that's very important. Absolutely. So we're coming close, unfortunately, to the end of the program. And I typically ask all of my guests, what is something you'd like to share about yourself that people may not know?
2: Hmm. I, I think that I do share this. Uh, enough, but maybe it's something that I want to put more of a focus on because I think that there can be misconceptions that if you're a mental health activist, that your mental health is squared away, that you're completely fine, that the idea of recovery isn't really a thing. And so I want to be more open and really humanize who I am and share more of the doubts that I have, the insecurities that I have, and that it is a tough process to fight for others and feel like you can't fight for yourself or that your lack of confidence impacts how you go about it. But I think I'm always going back to my why and remembering that I want to help people and my insecurities come, but I kind of have to put that to the side and and focus on how I can make a difference, but definitely going to therapy and working on that too. So just trying to be more vulnerable and honest about how I don't have it all figured out and that I still do have mental health struggles.
1: Yeah, and I think it's also important to, for all of us, because you and I and many others are on a regular basis talking to people who are really struggling and, you know, they look to us for answers. I think it's always important to allow people to know that, A, we don't have all the answers. B, they're the ones who have to be looking at how to get the answer that works for them. And it's difficult because there's so many legitimate issues that people are facing and you can see them struggling, but like on a little lighter note to end this, and that is what's your favorite food?
2: It's hard to pick a favorite food. I love all types of food. I don't know exactly what a foodie is, but I I think that I am. And I don't know if it's just eating all types of food, but it, it would be hard to pick
1: something, but I do love chocolate. That could be <laughs> what about dark chocolate versus milk chocolate versus white chocolate
2: dark chocolate all the way
1: me too so we will end on this funny note I decided many years ago I'm always a little bit obsessed about my weight because it's hard to move me if I get too heavy so I decided I really like dark chocolate And what I would do is whenever I would go by a store that was selling individual dark chocolate cherries or dark chocolate raspberries, I would go in and buy one. And I've lived by that. And so for me, dark chocolate cherries is like amazing. Yeah. I look forward really to meeting you in person coming up to New York and we can go to some good restaurants and thank you for all the work that you're doing. And there's so much more that we could discuss. Anything else you want to say?
2: I am so thankful to you and for everything that you've done. I do feel that this is a surreal moment for me because I've always admired you. And so I I think I must be doing something good if I am able to share a space with you. So
1: I'm, I'm quite honored. Well, it's very mutual.
0: Now it's time for Ask Judy, a segment where Judy answers questions sent in by listeners. That was a really great episode with Dior. We've been wanting to do an episode about mental health for a while. And I think she was a really good person to talk with.
1: I think she provides us with a lot of new information, but most importantly, how she herself has engaged in a way that also is allowing her to be an example for other people. And I think learning from others is a great way to help advance, you know, our movement. In this case, people who have mental health disabilities, the whole issue of pride in who we are. Definitely. And
0: Dior also has some experience working in reproductive rights, which is something that obviously has been a big topic this week. So we thought it would be a great opportunity to talk in this Ask Judy segment about the overturn of Roe v. Wade. So Judy got several questions on her Facebook and Instagram posts about how this decision is going to affect disability rights and disabled people.
1: I would like to answer that in two ways. One is, I sincerely hope that the disabled community will get more involved in elections local elections, state elections, national elections. And I say that because the vast majority of people in the United States, and I'm sure this includes disabled people, believe that a woman has the right to choose. We can get into discussing the adversity that this decision will have on disabled women. We know that it will have a more significant impact on disabled women because of all the barriers that we face even when abortion is allowed. The risk of violence and rape against disabled people, pregnancy as a result of it. I'm so deeply distressed about how this decision, which has been in the making for 40 years, has not resulted in those states that are looking at putting in place the most drastic provisions in law, not only prohibiting abortions, Um, after a certain number of weeks, but also prohibiting abortions based on rape and incest. I very much believe in a woman's right to choose. Whether I personally would choose to have an abortion is my personal opinion and something that I need to be in control with. I don't believe that we should be dictating to women, disabled and non-disabled women, how they should control their bodies. And I want to also say that I am so deeply distressed that while this opinion and many states will be requiring people to have unwanted children, that they are not following it with money and legislation that would provide people with the opportunity to financially support the growth and development of their children with healthcare, with food, with money for rent, et cetera. It's, to me so hypocritical. I'm Jewish, and my religious beliefs do not coincide with what the majority are saying in the court. And given the separation of church and state, I also fundamentally believe that it is wrong for the court to be putting down these blanket rules and overturning Roe, which has, as we all know, been the law of the land for the last 50 years. So please take this seriously. Feel empowered, not disempowered. Make sure that you learn about the work of RevUp. Make sure that at the local level, city council, school boards, judges, state representatives, federal representatives, all of these positions matter. We need to look at who is running. We need more disabled people who are running, and we need to make sure that we are protecting the rights of all people, including disabled people.
0: Yeah, Thank you very much, Judy. And thank you to everyone who reached out asking about this. And if you want to learn any more, I will include some resources in the description of this episode relating to the overturn of Roe v. Wade and disability, as well as voting, as Judy mentioned, rev up. Thank you. That
2: history
1: won't forget us or tragic-
0: Thanks for tuning in to The Human Perspective. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also follow Judy on Twitter at judithhuman and on Instagram and Facebook at The Human Perspective. If you want to find out more information about this episode's guest or resources relating to the discussion, check out the description of this episode or visit JudithHuman.com. You can also find a shortened video version of this interview on Judy's YouTube channel, dropping a week after this podcast is published. Otherwise, be sure to check back every other Wednesday for a new podcast episode. The intro music for The Human Perspective is Dragon, which is produced and performed by Lachi, Yontero, and Warren. The outro music is I Wait by Galen Lee.